Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks that we can speak to you and know that you are in heaven hearing us. We pray by the help of your spirit and in the name of your son that you would come and give us your help so that this print on this page might come to our eyes and we could see it, be falling on our ears and we could hear it, come through our mind and we could understand it and into our hearts and we can believe it and our life would be changed by it. We genuinely ask for the instruction, encouragement, conviction, all the things that your word is able to do. And we pray by the help of the Holy Spirit that you would do that in us now, that we would be changed to some degree uh, different than when we came in. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we are in this series where we're considering Advent together and the arrival of Jesus Christ. And this Christmas time, and at the top of the list of what Christmas time is about... It's a time for receiving gifts. But would you consider that some gifts are harder to receive than others? For example, I was reading this book called Hidden Christmas, and the author there says, imagine this scenario. Imagine that it's Christmas morning, and I come running down on Christmas morning, and I receive under the tree a gift from a dear friend, and I open it up, and there is a book on dieting and weight loss, right? Or uh, I open up another box, and it's a bottle of Rogaine, right? If I, if I were to receive those two gifts, and I don't appreciate you chuckling at either one, if I were to receive those two gifts and genuinely say thank you, for me to do that would have to do what? I'd essentially be admitting that I'm overweight and balding. That's the only way that I could say thank you. It may be a needed gift, but it's a very unflattering gift. I want you to know, by the way, my children are having a blast in this season of my life teasing me about the growing bald spot in the back of my head. And I keep telling them, as long as I can't see it, it doesn't bother me, right? I don't have eyes in the back of my head, and so I have no problem. What is obvious and apparent and growing more visible to everyone else, I'm blind too. In much the same way, here's what I want you to hear. Our world is a bit blind. It has a bald spot when it comes to the gift that it truly needs and what it means about us around Christmas time. So, for example, consider what our world would say about this season of life. A CNN article in talking about what Christmas is said this, Christmas is about finding what's holy in all of us. And the quote would be, Christmas is about revealing the divinity in each of us. We each have a piece of God in us, and Christmas reveals how to access that holy part of ourselves. Right? The message is, there's something beautiful and divine within, and use this magical time of year to access that which is best in us. Or a New York Times ad would say it this way, the meaning of Christmas is that love will triumph and that we will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. There it is. Use this unbelievable, magical time of year to inspire each one of us to dig down deep and pull out that which is best within us. And if we work together and if we work hard at it, we can make the world a better place. Okay. But then you step back and you consider what's being celebrated by millions of people around the world at Christmas is this. That God sent into the world a savior. Now you think about that, because if the world runs down on Christmas morning and unwraps to its shock and its surprise a savior, then what does that say about the world? What does that imply about the world? It implies that the world needs saving. 
It's a needed gift, but it's not a very flattering one because what it implies then is that you can't save yourself and that the world is so desperately beyond any resources from within itself to pull itself up and rescue itself and redeem itself and save itself that someone from the outside had to jump in and rescue the world when it could not. It's a needed gift, but it's a very unflattering gift. It implies, a savior implies that we needed saving. A lifeguard doesn't jump into a pool unless you are drowning and helpless and dying and beyond an ability to rescue yourself. The very fact that the lifeguard is in the pool means you're done. You're drowning. You're dying. And so it is with Christmas that no gift is at the same time as loving and as humbling as what's offered to us at Christmas. Because what Christmas is saying to us is the unflattering but needed truth that you and I and the world around us is so desperately lost, so beyond ourselves to help ourselves or pull ourselves out, that we needed God to jump into this mess of a world and pull us up when we couldn't pull ourselves out. You see, Christmas is shouting to a drowning world that's got a bald spot that it cannot see. You need help from beyond yourself, from outside yourself. In fact, it took God himself to come down and rescue us. God has to jump in and act. And in fact, that's exactly what we see God doing in Christmas. That's what we're going to see in our passage as well. We're in Matthew chapter 1. So if you've got a Bible, would you open it there? I think it's page 807. And we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 25. And what we're going to see in this passage first is this. That God sent the world a savior. That's the first thing that Matthew will show us in this passage. When we were drowning and beyond ourselves and unable to help ourselves, the implication of a savior is that we needed saving. And God sent the world a savior. Here's what you'll find in the passage. That when the world woke up on that very first Christmas morning, it unwrapped to its own shock and surprise a savior. A savior. And Matthew wants us to know in this passage that we did not bring about the Savior. That's what he wants to emphasize. That the Savior is not the result of human initiative. It's not us deciding we need to do something about our world and we'll pull something together. It's not human effort. It's not human action or human initiative. In fact, so much so that Matthew wants to know from his conception itself, this has been divine. This has been outside you. This wasn't your plan. This has been God acting so much so from even the way the Savior was conceived. It's divine conception and not human. God's the one acting here. It's his initiative. It's his action. What's stressed in this passage is that Jesus is not the human byproduct of human action, of human initiative. This is not Mary and Joseph's doing. This is from God. Look at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, some background will help us understand what's happening here. Jewish scholars tell us there's sort of three stages in the Jewish custom, Jewish system for marriage. First, you had engagement. Engagement sort of informal, often arranged by parents, often while the kids were still just kids. An informal understanding between parents that when my boy grows up and your girl grows up, they'll get married. Phase two was much more serious and weighty. It's called betrothal. 
And in betrothal, you were essentially legally married to the person. You didn't come together. You had a year apart where the husband would prepare the house and get ready to welcome his bride. But in this year apart, you were technically husband and wife. And then the third and final stage was marriage itself. They would come together and they would be one, consummate their wedding as husband and wife. Well, here, this Jewish couple named Joseph and Mary are in phase two. They're betrothed, that is, they're legally married. And you can see that in the text because he will be referred to as her husband. She will be referred to as his wife. So much so that to get out of this, in verse 19, we're told he would have to divorce her. Because in the eyes of God, in the eyes of the law, in the eyes of the community, they are married. They're in phase two, but it's before they've come together. That's what verse 18 says, right? Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And there it is. There is the old and unbelievable mystery and miracle of Christmas, that a child is growing within the womb of Mary, but what 18 is stressing to us is it's not Joseph. It's not Joseph. That's the emphasis Matthew wants to put in this passage. This is not Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child. This is not Joseph. And if yes, then, then who is it? The text continues in verse 18 to say, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Sort of like if you open the very first page of your Bible and you went to Genesis 1, the second verse itself would say that while there was nothing, the Spirit of God hovered over the nothing before life came. So much the same way, now in Matthew 1, the Spirit of God has overshadowed the womb of this woman Mary, and where there was nothing, now life has come. The same Spirit is doing the same new creative work at the new creation. Remember Genesis, Matthew 1, the genesis of Jesus Christ, which we looked at last week? Now is the Spirit hovering over, doing a new work of new creation, a new genesis here in the womb of Mary. But the point is, this is not Joseph. This is not the work of man. This is the work of, the initiative of, the action of God. Verse 20 will tell you the same thing. But has he, that's Joseph, considered these things? Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. A second time. Same emphasis. Here, what we're told is, look, we know now from 18, this child is not from Joseph. But now we get 20 to add in the part we're all curious about, which is to also say, and also, before you think anything wrong, this child is also not from infidelity. This is not from fornication. That, that'd be the logical conclusion. Mary's pregnant. It's not Joseph. So then the logical conclusion would be, well, it's someone else's. And 20 is here to say, no, no, just in case that's the thought you would have. Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary. This isn't what you think. She hasn't been unfaithful. For again, a second time, what is conceived in her womb is from the Holy Spirit. The text is saying to us, this is not Joseph, and this is not another man. This is no man. This is God. God is bringing this about. In fact, even, friends, the comment at the end of the passage, look at 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Why do we get that comment? 
It's to say, after the dream, Joseph moved from phase two to phase three. He took her, made her his wife. Now they could be one. And yet, even in that phase, he doesn't do what husbands do. He still didn't sleep with her, which is the text way of saying, not before she got pregnant and not after, at no point, in every way, in no shape or form, was this Joseph. This was not Joseph. This was not Joseph. Third time, this was not Joseph. This was not another man. This, this is from God. God, Seven Mile Road. God is acting. God is taking the initiative. When the world couldn't save itself, when it was drowning in the cesspool of sin, God acted and God brought about a savior into the world. God is dispatching and sending his lifeguard into the world because salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation comes from God. It's the act of God. It's the initiative of God. If you didn't start it, you can't lose it. He began this work. He decided that he was going to act from his initiative, from his action. Matthew is telling us Jesus is not the byproduct of human action. Not Mary and Joseph. This is God conceived in the womb of woman, born by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what's happening here. Now our world would say to us, come on, it's 2018. You cannot possibly believe in a virgin birth. Our, our critics would tell us, come on, don't you know, if you've read enough, you'd know that Matthew, Matthew's just borrowing this story from other pagan literature in his day. Matthew's just reaching out to the Greeks. They had stories like this, and so he's bringing this in when he needs to bring about his God-man. Just like Zeus would have found a woman he lusted after and slept with her, and now you'd have a, a God-man 50-50. So it is that Jesus is brought forth the same way. And we'd say this. Listen, if Matthew was trying to come up with a story, invent something, to spread to the Jewish people of all people, remember what we saw last week? First 17 verses, some 40 somewhat odd, funny Jewish names to convince the Jewish people that this was their Messiah, their Christ, wanting the Jewish people to believe in him. If he wants to invent a story for the Jews to believe, the last place he would have went was borrowing a page from the pagans. They hated the pagans. They wanted nothing to do with the pagans. They thought nothing of the pagans. It'd be like, if I want a story to spread in Philly, do you imagine I'd borrow a page from Jerry Jones or the Cowboys? That would make no sense. It'd have no life here in Philly. I wouldn't go to my sworn enemy to rip something off to bring to us. Matthew would have never come up with this. In fact, you think of this. The Jewish people so revered Yahweh, they wouldn't have done what I just did. They wouldn't have said his name on their lips. They wouldn't have written his name down. They never crafted an image of Yahweh. That was unthinkable to them. In fact, so much so that when the Romans first encountered the Jews, they called them atheists because they were the only people around without a God you could see. They were the godless people. Everyone else had gods. They didn't. They were atheists. And so to imagine the Jewish people embracing the idea that Yahweh had tucked himself in the womb of a woman, and been born in the flesh, so that walking on two legs, Jesus in the flesh was Yahweh in the flesh, was an unthinkable story, unless Matthew was convinced this actually happened. This would have gained no traction unless Matthew was convinced this is exactly what happened. And what Matthew wants to hear, wants what you to hear, is that when the world was drowning, 
when it couldn't pull itself up, when it couldn't save itself, that first Christmas morning, a Savior was sent. God in the flesh. This is Emmanuel, God with us. And he is not 50-50. He is truly born of the Holy Spirit so that he is 100% God. And truly born from the womb of Mary so that he's 100% man. He is fully God and fully man. And as the God-man, he and he alone is uniquely able to save. He's the Savior the world needed because he can be the one who represents God to man and the one who represents man to God, and he is and only him the Savior of the world. What I'm saying to you is you cannot receive the gift offered at Christmas, the central gift of Jesus himself, without humbling yourself, without it shredding up your pride, without you realizing You were so lost. You were such a mess that God himself had to come to rescue you. That not even another good guy could pull you up. You were so lost and so dead and so beyond hope that God himself, with all the resources and energy and power and strength of God himself, had to step into this world to save you to jump into the cesspool, to bring you out, to drown for your sin so that the Holy Spirit can breathe life into your corpse. That's how lost you were. That's how humbling Christmas is. But at the same time, there's no gift more loving in the world than this that God couldn't possibly have stood by and watched you drown. That he couldn't have possibly watched you choke on your sin. And life go from your soul without jumping in and rescuing you. It humbles you to know this is what it took to save you. But it encourages you to know this is how loved you are that he gladly did so. The first thing that Matthew wants you to hear is that God sent into the world a savior. But here's the second thing. That receiving that savior will cost you. Matthew wants you to know God sent into this world a Savior, but second, receiving that Savior will cost you. You think of this for a moment. Matthew does what none of the other accounts does. He gives us a version of Christianity sort of from the eyes of Joseph. None of the other accounts do that. And so we get to see Christmas from Joseph's point of view. When you think about it, in sort of the parade of Christmas heroes, Joseph is usually at the back of the parade, if he makes the parade at all. Right? We, we know Joseph's there, but we don't really think much about Joseph. I was thinking this week, you even think of the songs that we sing. We've got a song for everybody in the story. We sing about Mary and, and whether she knew something. And then we sing about the shepherds watching their flocks at night. And we sing about the kings traveling from Orient R and coming. We've even invented a drummer boy that wasn't in the story. We sing about him too. Our brother Joseph gets no songs. Right? When's the last time you heard a song with Joseph in it? You don't even think of Joseph. In fact, Joseph is sort of this silent figure in the Christmas story. And I want you to hear that. Literally silent. As an introvert, I have to tell you, I especially love Joseph. Do you know how many words Joseph says in the scriptures? Zero. Never opens his mouth. When you think of Joseph, he is every bit as silent in the scriptures as the wooden figure in the nativity on your lawn. You see that figure hovering over the child, not saying a word? That's the same man in the scriptures. And yet, Matthew helps us consider what Christmas meant for Joseph. What it meant, yes, God sent into the world a savior. But what did it mean for Joseph to receive that savior? 
to accept that Savior, to take in that Savior. If it's the traditional age for marriage, then Joseph would have been a 19- or 20-year-old young man, betrothed to his young bride. And remember, if it's in his day, Joseph would have been in phase two. So he's legally married, but he's counting down the days to phase three, when he can take her home and they can be husband and wife. So if it's in our day, the wedding website is up. If it's in our day, the countdown clock is on. Everyone's counting down six months, four days, 24 hours, 23 hours, 10 minutes, four seconds. It, on his Facebook wall is the hashtag, right, Joe Mary or, or Mary Mary, which is what I thought of, by the way. You think of that? M-A-R-R-Y, M-A-R-Y, Mary Mary. I thought that was brilliant. So he's getting ready for his wedding day. He's counting out the days. He's betrothed to this bride. In six months, he'll take her home. And she comes for a visit. And can you imagine him hearing Joseph, I'm pregnant. And, and we don't get to hear what he said because Joseph doesn't speak in the scriptures. But could you imagine what that moment was like for this young 20-year-old man working his tail off, preparing a home to receive his bride, counting down the days? I'm pregnant. Could you imagine in that moment his head spinning, his body reeling, the world sort of goes deaf? When he did finally say something, what did he say? Maybe, maybe he stammered out some version of, how could you? Maybe he asked, with who? Or maybe he asked, who, who's the father? And then Mary's explanation, you imagine, doesn't help anything. Right? Mary tries to explain, Joseph, listen to me. I, I, I need you to hear, it's not what you think. I have not been unfaithful. And can you imagine the conversation then? Joseph saying something to the effect of, okay, then Mary, help me understand this. Because you're saying you're pregnant. It's not me. And you're saying you've not been unfaithful. So tell me, how did this happen? And then a long pause. The Holy Spirit. I mean, that's as laughable today as it was for him then. And Joseph didn't know what to make of it. And listen, he didn't buy it. And not because he's not a good guy. In fact, that's exactly the emphasis Matthew wants to hear. This is a good guy. He's a really good guy. He can't go through with this marriage, not after that. In fact, not even just because he's emotionally wrecked and, and he can't make himself do it. He's a just man, the text says, and the, scripture, the, the, the scriptures wouldn't allow it. There's a law in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy that if a woman during the betrothal is found to be indecent, then the man is to divorce her at best or much worse to have her stoned. I mean, virginity was a prized and important thing for Israel's daughters. God's holiness mattered. It was a really big thing. And so here's this man in verse 19 says, because he's a good man, her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. It's something. Even in the way this man is going to divorce his wife, he exhibits godliness. Even in how he's going to divorce her, he's godly. He's not going to go for blood. He's not going to make her pay. He's not going to drag her out and make a spectacle and let everyone see her and let everyone stone her. At the most, he's going to do the minimum or that the law requires. He's going to go to two witnesses, write a notice, and send her away. And that'll be the end of that. But that very night, an angel comes, verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph... 
Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And here's what's amazing. Look at verse 24. The angel comes, tells him, don't be afraid to take her. And 24, when Joseph awoke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Here's what's amazing about Joseph. No words, Joseph. Silent Joseph. And yet his actions shout the kind of man he is. In the little screen time Joseph gets in the scriptures, every time you see him, God's telling him to do something, and Joseph does it. Joseph obeys. But consider, Sevmarod, what obeying Jesus, what obeying God meant for Joseph. Consider what receiving the Savior that God had sent into the world would mean for Joseph, what it would cost Joseph. In about six months' time, a full-term, healthy, newborn baby will be born. And everybody can do the math. Every eye is going to look at this couple and say, explain this to us. Phase three happened about six months ago. And here is this fully developed, full-term baby boy. And so what does that mean? It means either Joseph has fornicated or that Mary has. Because if it was Mary, in fact, it's probably worse for Joseph. If it was Mary, then he would have done the right thing and divorced her. That he didn't is because he did this. And so what does that mean about him? What does that mean about this baby? In fact, the shadow of sort of this illegitimacy would hover over their lives. In fact, I think there's even a dig at Jesus about it. That there's be a shadow, a shade over his birth all his life to everyone. What does that mean for them? You can imagine the whispers and the rumors and the glances and what it was like for them to walk into their conservative Jewish community what it cost them socially, what it cost their reputation, what was said about them. Could you hear the conversations? I would have never thought that about Mary. I would have never expected that from Joseph. I mean, you, you can imagine what it cost them. Cost them socially and from their family and their reputation. And not just that. We'll talk about Mary's account of Christmas next week. But literally, receiving the Savior that God sent into the world put Mary under a death sentence. She could literally be stoned for what she's claiming happened. I mean, not not just her, them together. From the moment this child is born, soon a king named Herod would be hunting for this baby. And this couple, who had all these dreams for their life, didn't imagine that the first year of their marriage would entail sort of running for their lives, escaping. I mean, they'd be in danger. From the moment this child was announced to them, it's trouble. It costs. It costs them in every way. In fact, the text even says the angel came and said, Joseph, here's what you should name the baby. Name him Jesus. I mean, in that culture, in that day, to at least name your firstborn son is the right of every dad. And nothing about this pregnancy and nothing about this birth and nothing about this child is in any way what Joseph imagined. He doesn't get to have any say in any of it, in how it happens, in who it happens, in in any of it, down, down even to the name of it. He doesn't get to determine any of it. And any follower of Jesus, any Christian who has received the Savior that God sent into the world would be able to tell you the same thing. It has cost me everything to receive the Savior God sent into the world. That nothing about my life was now the way that I wanted it to be. 
I mean, on the other side of the world, our brothers and sisters in Christ would tell us literally receiving the Savior meant a death sentence on our heads. We don't know that in this side of the world, but we do know what it costs us socially, what it costs our reputation. I mean, in your places of work, in your friend circles, in your neighborhood, if you align with the historic faiths of Christianity, the historic Christian faiths, that is that you believe in the virgin birth, you believe in the resurrection, you align with God on his ethics, you view sexuality the way that God does, you think that things like fornication matters and and God has a say on virginity, you think these things, you know what it costs. And moreover, every Christian who has received Jesus would tell you, I, like Joseph, signed over the deed of my life to him. So now he gets to call the shots. And many of you who follow Jesus would tell you, I'm not living where I thought I would live. This isn't where I imagined my life would be. I'm not calling the shots on my life. Nothing about my life has panned out the way that I would have thought it or scripted it. But that's because I signed over the deed of my life to someone else. It has cost me in every way you could imagine to follow Jesus Christ, to receive the Savior that God sent into the world. Do you hear that? Matthew wants you to hear in this passage, at Christmas time, God sent into the world a Savior. But second, to receive that Savior will cost you. Then third, I want to end by saying, what will help you bear that cost then? How will you suffer? How will you embrace whatever it takes to follow Jesus? What it costs you socially and personally and in your life? How will you do that except this? Third and finally, it's to recognize that receiving you costs the Savior. You can only receive the Savior when it costs you, when you recognize and understand and embrace what it costs the Savior to receive you. I want you to hear this Seven Mile Road because some of you may have heard this a hundred times, 10,000 times, that it'll fly over your head. But I want to ask you this Christmas to consider afresh and anew, even on this Sunday morning, what it costs the Savior to receive you. Because to the degree that you really understand that, to the degree I really feel that, is to the only degree in which I will be ready to receive cost for him. It's when you fully see, when your heart fully understands, when your soul fully embraces what it cost Jesus to receive you, what it cost him. 21, the angel came and said, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Name him Jesus. Why? Because he'll save his people. Name him Jesus. Jesus as in the Greek name for the Hebrew name Joshua. It's just the Greek version of Joshua. And Joshua simply means Yahweh saves. So call him God saves because that's what he's come to do. Give him that name. God saves because this is what he's come to do. He's come to save. Save from what? Every Jew in that day would have answered that question with all the gusto in the world. They would have said, we know why there's a Savior. We know why a Messiah has come to save us from our enemy. And who's your enemy? Rome is. And every Jewish person would have said, that's exactly why the Savior is born. But here's the thing. That's not what the angel says. You see, Israel had a bald spot it wasn't aware of. It had a need it had no idea of. They thought their greatest need was deliverance from Rome. And so they unwrapped to their shock and their surprise a savior that had come to allow Rome to sit on the throne but was going to dethrone sin. 
a savior that they couldn't have imagined, a need greater than they knew. You see, to, to free you from Rome, you didn't need a divinely conceived, virgin-born God-man. If Rome was the end of it, you just needed a better version of David. You just needed another king. To save from Rome, you just need a king. To save you from your sins, you'll need a king who embraces being a servant. To save you from Rome, you just need someone to come in power. To save you from your sins, you need someone to embrace weakness. To save you from Rome, you just need someone with a sword. To save you from sin, you need someone to be pierced by a sword. To save you from Rome, you just need someone to kill. To save you from your sins, you need someone to sign up to being killed. To save you from Rome, you just need someone to crush the enemy. To save you from sin, you need someone crushed for the enemy, even by the enemy. So I want you to hear again, this Christmas, would you consider afresh and anew what it costs the Savior to receive you? I mean, you imagine, I've been trying to imagine myself, this is real. There really is a God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Ultimate reality is a triune God who existed from before time began, who is eternally existent in heaven and totally content and totally happy and totally holy and totally perfect. And that that true God really did, the second person of that trinity, really did step off of that throne and really did come into this cesspool of a world and really was born here for us. That he couldn't stand by in heaven and watch us drown, and so he came. And you consider with me what it cost him so that he could come into this world and gag on our sin and drown in our cesspool till the Holy Spirit could push us up out of the waters and breathe life into our dead spiritual corpses. And that this dead heart could finally start to beat when it had no thought for this God, when it had no initiative, no action towards this God. He took action. He wasn't responding to me. He wasn't responding to me crying out for help. I didn't know to say help. And he, in love, before I had done anything good or evil, decided to step off his throne and come for me. The second person of the Trinity left it all for my sake and then was born into this world. The only begotten Son of God, the only true Son of God, came and was born under the shadow of an illegitimate birth. He was treated like a word I can't say out loud from this pulpit because they didn't know who the father was. The only one with the true father treated like he was illegitimate so that I who was illegitimate could be adopted as a son. So that you who were illegitimate could be welcomed as children. The child of God, the true child of God, treating like he's nothing so that we nothings could become the children of God. You consider afresh and anew what it cost. Jesus Christ to receive you and then and only then will it turn your heart to embrace what it costs to receive him so here's what Matthew's saying this Christmas you were so messed up so beyond help so utterly ruined didn't even have the sense to cry out for help so dead in your sins that God had to send to this broken world a savior this city, this state, this country, this world, so broken that it unwrapped to its shock and surprise a savior, 
of God's initiative, of God's action, because God decided he was going to save this world. But at the same time, so deeply loved that the Son gladly did so, that he would rather die than live in heaven without you and embraced you to be his own. So loved are you, so loved am I. And so this Christmas, I invite you to do what Joseph and Mary did, receive Jesus. It will cost you everything. In fact, maybe afresh and anew what you're doing today is you're signing again on the dotted line to your life and handing it over to Jesus. Where I live, what I do, what, what I spend my time with, what I spend my money with, what my occupation will be, what everything is, you sign it over to him again. And you embrace the cost of following Jesus because you have considered, drank in deeply, had your heart moved by what it cost him to receive you. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would give us the Spirit without limit, that we would be filled with the Spirit, baptized with the Spirit, so that we might see our need afresh and the provision of Christ afresh, the work of Christ afresh, that our hearts might be moved for the first time or the thousandth time to embrace the one who gave everything up to embrace us. So we pray that you would help us to receive this word, to believe it, and then produce from our lives the thousands and tens of thousands acts of obedience that come from this. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.